0: Hi, I'm Mike. Hey, I'm Kelsey. We're into telling you stories. Sometimes funny, sometimes awkward, sometimes creepy or sad, but who knows?
1: Every month it's different, but no (laughs) matter what, you'll be asking yourself.
0: Okay, WTF.
1: Welcome, friends.
0: Hey, Mike. Oh, hi, Kelsey. Can you believe that this is episode five? No, I can't. You're lying. I'm not lying. I wish I was lying because I wish this was episode 500.
1: Whoa, that's crazy.
0: Crazy. But glad to be recording. Glad to be here. Episode five, half of my lucky number, which is 10 for anyone who's not ready for math.
1: I never knew about you.
0: Yeah, lucky number 10. All right. What's your lucky number?
1: I've always been partial to 11 or 13.
0: Oh, like eleven, eleven or like bad luck, thirteenth floor. But good luck, Mike, Mike Mike, Mike.
1: Mike, Mike. Mm-hmm. I'm just always drawn to things people tend to have like superstitions about. So,
0: oh, so have, like, you like crows. you like elephants with their trunks turned down. I like
1: crows. I was probably too old. To play pokemon but when i did i always chose the ones that people hated uh, oh that seemed interesting i like animals that people don't seem to like a lot of a lot of pests 11
0: spiders,
1: spiders. Yep. I, I mean i don't mind them my wife does not <laughs> like them i try she and save not. as many as i can before does she why? sees them and i bring them outside
0: <laughs> uh, there are two spiders in the room that i'm in right now that will no longer be with us so shall we say best to you friends (laughs) best to you
1: thank you for your service
0: yes whatever that was (laughs) (laughs) well i'm excited i feel like it's always way too long before we record again but also i have to say i recently took a vacation Hmm. actually i have taken two vacations to the lovely state of maine recently my most recent vacation was not what inspired the story, but the one before it, I went to Bar Harbor mm. and it inspired my story.
1: Lobsters everywhere,
0: then. Close. Try again, though. Do you have any uh, guesses? Lighthouses. No, but Dang. great guess.
1: <laughs> uh, ghostly They're...
0: sea captains. Closer, closer, oh. closer. We'll see. We'll see where we land on this, but that's where the inspiration came from. You know, we've talked about we've got these running lists of like moments that make us go, "Okay, WTF what's that about?" And this was mine for this one. Made the the top of the list. So hear about it. (laughs) Well, we'll see once we get through this what your thoughts are for sure. Lots of great resources on this one from rmg which is a uk-based situation smithsonian mag of course wikipedia the mary sue.com ricto morton another uk lots of uk for this one history extra more wikipedia Uh, bruminate.com the independent and that's pretty much it lots of great stuff here don't look too closely even though you have so now you know Broadly, what we're talking about, I think. Sneaky sneaky. Let's dive in. All right. For my story this time, we are going to embark on, I suppose I'd say, a thrilling journey into the madness of maritime history. Okay. (laughs) Basically, to explore the tale of two pirate queens, or really just pirates, but I'm gonna say pirate queens. So let's set sail. See what I did there. And unravel this captivating adventure. Really, did you hear that? What? <laughs> no, it's just me. I, I'm like losing my mind. I was okay. about to
1: like interrupt and be like, we should have started Please. this by saying ahoy. But ahoy! I, didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know.
0: Ahoy. What do I sort of done? Yes. Guess. Guess what I'm going to be talking about. Ahoy. our there's
1: Anchors away on your podcast.
0: Anchors <laughs> Oh no, it's going to be the Pun Podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm keeping all this in. I control the editing and it's all Oh, astray.
0: you do. Oh boy. Well, ultimately it's a tale of two women and more, who extraordinary women who defied societal norms and ultimately left an indelible mark on the world of piracy. So, before we dive in, I'll set the stage. It's the late 17th century. A time when piracy was rampant in the Caribbean and the Atlantic waters, the oceans teemed with notorious male pirates, probably many of whom you're aware of. Mm-hmm. But our story will unfold with a woman who would go on to shatter, is there a pun here, the, the glass ceiling of the pirate world, I guess. But uh, <laughs> what would that be? I'm thinking. We're struggling. We're struggling. <laughs> one might say
1: we're amazing. drowning
0: we're drowning but i think it will be good so i don't know okay. according to our friend wikipedia the 17th century aka the 1600s mm-hmm. for any of you out there confused by that quote falls into the early modern period of europe and in that continent whose impact on the world was increasing was characterized by the Baroque cultural movement, the latter part of the Spanish Golden Age, the Dutch Golden Age, the French Grand Cecile dominated by Louis XIV, the Scientific Revolution, the world's first public company and mega corporation known as the Dutch East India Company, and according to some historians, the General Crisis. End quote. I feel like the General Crisis has persisted. Yeah, has anyway. not ended. So additionally, as is much of history, women or non-men were not seen as capable and independent. So this story is one of general fascination, but also a bit of a commentary on the breakdown of traditional gender roles and the role of gender in general. So I've got two pictures here of Anne Bonny, a woman who became an icon of female empowerment in an era that was dominated by men. She was born around 1697 in County Cork, Ireland, and she grew up in a time when women were expected to conform. I mean, we're still in that time. She grew up in, and much like today, <laughs> yes. a time when women were expected to conform to societal norms and really remain in the domestic sphere. In my research, there were definitely anecdotes where it was stated that Anne was kind of also when she was younger was known to identify as a boy so mm-hmm. she would refer to herself as Alex and as for Anne's family her father was a successful lawyer named William Cormac, and her mother's background and identity was really not well documented which unfortunately I'm not surprised about and even if it had been it kind of makes me think it would just be like an Anne Bonnie's mother Thanks. the <laughs> wife to William Cormack <laughs> I would have never named her probably anyway but Anne's adventurous spirit and yearning for a life beyond convention really led her down this rather unusual path. So, yeah, a couple of illustrations of Anne Bonney here and kind of some pirate gear wielding her weapons. That's from Bellaterra Publishing. But the images are from English and Dutch versions of a 1724 edition of a classic book, which was a general history of the robberies and murders of the most notorious pirates. So... Around the age of 16, Anne's family immigrated to the then-British colony of South Carolina in North America. And it was here in the U.S. where she encountered a world vastly different from her humble Irish origins. I will not even attempt an Irish accent. It was about two, and then I was like, don't even do it. I healthy. felt it. I felt it coming. And you know, <laughs> Don't I was go like, down there. It do was not going to be good. <laughs> do
1: we have nope. an Irish audience? I nope. don't think.
0: Yeah, I I mean, maybe my husband is he considered that? (laughs) Maybe Uh, well, I don't want to scare them away, so if you're there, I held back. So, she her life took kind of a fateful turn around the time that she was 18, though I did find some reports saying she was about 13 when this happened. But she fell in love with a charismatic sailor and really a bar owner, pub owner named James Bonnie. Also, just as a total aside, my cat has joined me. She wants to hear the story. Hi, so that. if you hear her, she, yes. How did you? Oh, yeah. I said she. <laughs> that's I guess, how you know. I was like, how did you know? That's, that's it. Um, yeah, <laughs> but she is here and excited about this. So yeah. So it could have been when she was 13 or 18. Either one is probably alarming, but 13 is really alarming. So, despite her father's disapproval, Anna eloped with James Bonney. And she really, like, even before this, there are lots of reporting about how she really idolized the pirate life. And she really wanted to embark on adventures on the high seas. And her husband at the time was, I don't know if he was really considered a pirate, but he was definitely, I guess he he was more of like a, just a sailor. And as she would sail the seas, she realized that her dreams of a, more of what she considered to be a blissful pirate life were shattered really yeah. because she noticed that her husband James really lacked the courage and tenacity that she wanted in a partner Oh no! Um, yeah she's a bit fiery so and really to every account I was reading their marriage was plagued by abuse and it was just super tumultuous so her more adventurous spirit and just involvement and interest in pirates and piracy really clashed severely with James's disapproval of that lifestyle. And she was super unsatisfied with what she considered to be his meekness that she sought solace and inspiration elsewhere. So it was during her high sea travels that she encountered the infamous pirate captain Calico Jack Rackham. Have you heard of Calico Jack Rackham? I don't think so. Mm, Calico Jack. Well, Jack was a charismatic and daring figure. Let's see if I've got a photo of him. I don't. I mean, okay. So here, I have to... I tried to find (laughs) images of Jack Hmm. but But all I could find was apparently... He's like in a game of some kind. Yeah,
1: Black Sales. I saw the
0: link down at the bottom and I was like... (laughs) Yeah. Apparently, this is a depiction of him from some gamer thing. I could find no actual imagery. Every time I put in calico jack rackham it came up with and bonnie oh, so yeah. i could not find pictures so i laughed and took photos of or an illustration of him from the game and his pub <laughs> which is, was located yeah tell me sorry
1: that is kind of yeah. cool that you did search for a woman and instead got like
0: a yeah man. right
1: because usually right? women the other way are around. yeah are kind of like yeah <laughs> they're centered around like how men know them instead of yeah. like how this man is known is all because of
0: because this of and yeah no it's That's so true exciting. it's so true i like that i know it's <laughs> we'll give that a positive edge here yeah. and i i took from that game to his his pub which was located on the river thames which is in the uk and there's a, a photo of that map area here too on, on the water. So not him, but him, (laughs) but he was charismatic. He was daring everything she wanted. And the reason why his name was Calico Jack is because he used to wear very colorful clothing. So she was captivated by his audacity and his charm. He was really the antithesis of her husband and so she made this life-altering decision, and she left her husband, James Bonnie, and she joined forces with Calico Jack to embark on a life of what she felt was true piracy. Okay. So with Anne Bonnie now an integral part of Calico Jack's crew, she proved herself as fierce or more so as any man on board. She quickly earned the respect of her fellow pirates and was proving her worth in numerous battles and raids. And as a female pirate, Anne became a symbol of strength and determination in this world we have here where women are often relegated to these supporting roles. So Anne's life as a pirate reached its pinnacle during the infamous capture of the ship William in 1720. Maybe that was Jack Rackham. I guess it is. Yeah, It's a woodcut of him. Maybe that was the only photo I found. I struggled, is all I have to say. So on the screen now, I've got Jack Rackham as, from a 1725 edition, that same general history of the pirates from Charles Johnson. Mm -hmm. And then there's an illustration or some sort of art that was done of representing the William, which was the ship that I'm about to talk about, but on the high seas here. So. Her life really reached her uh, pinnacle as a pirate in 1720. So they captured the William. And according to Wikipedia, this was considered a single ship fight between Calico's crew and an English pirateer or privateer named Jonathan Barnett in Jamaica. The ship was attacked by Calico Jack's crew, which included. And Bonnie. But what made this particular encounter legendary was not just the victory itself, but the releva- revelation that two of the pirates fighting valiantly were women. So Anne Bonny and another female pirate named Mary Reed fought side by side, wielding cutlasses and pistols, and they were unyielding in their determination to, perspe- to protect their respective pirate brethren, if gotcha. you will. So we're going to take a hot sec to detour here. Let's talk about Mary Reed. Ever heard of her?
1: No. You know, pirates are a big blind spot for me in my
0: history
1: tutelage.
0: Ah, well, you are getting the down and dirty here. I am. Um, At least on female or non-male pirates. So, unfortunately... Not too much is known about her Anne definitely is the limelight on this one. But she and Anne definitely shared some similarities in their early years. So Mary was born in England somewhere around 1690. And when she was young, her brother died. And that led her mother to end up disguising her as a boy. So during which time she assumed the name Mark Reed instead of Mary Reed. And that was all in order to inherit his estate because women weren't allowed to own property at that time. So in her teen years, she joined the British military and even fought in the nine years war before leaving that life behind. I know, right? It's like, I'm like, it's like not much is known about her. And then there's like these facts and I'm like, how do we not know anything else? But so she fought in this nine years war and then left that behind and really just turned to piracy in the high seas. So Kind of sounds familiar in some ways. So I've got some illustrations here of Mary Reed from that same book that the other, the English and Dutch 1724 editions. Fierce in her pirate gear. And so we're gonna go back to where we left off. So Mary and Anne met during the capture of William, that ship, and as an aside, there was actually speculation about an intimate relationship between them. Though there's no concrete evidence that necessarily exists, a professor and historian Kate Williams explained in an article for The Independent that, quote, lesbianism was not made illegal in the Victorian period. Not because Queen Victoria didn't like the idea of it, but instead due to male ministers being anxious that drawing attention to it could encourage women to try it and subsequently endanger the patriarchal order. So that's fascinating that they didn't outlaw it specifically because of that. But whether it was romantic or just an intense female bond, I don't know. No one knows. Who cares? All is welcome here. But good for them either way, (laughs) finding their, their person onward. So in 1720, Anne and Mary's piracy came to an abrupt end when their ship was captured by a British naval vessel. Both women were captured, arrested, and ultimately sentenced to death. And Bonnie's actual fate was seemingly unclear, though. Historians do not seem to agree on whether she was ultimately pardoned due to her claimed pregnancy at the time that she was arrested, or whether she was in fact executed. She just kind of seemed to disappear from historical records after the point of her arrest and imprisonment. Sadly, it's unknown what happened to Mary Reed. Some historians believe she died of fever while imprisoned, and others believe she died due to childbirth complications in prisons because, oh yeah, did I mention that both women claimed to be pregnant after their arrest? (laughs) Uh, And during their trial. So some people, some of the historians were like, Oh, they just claimed that to try to get pardoned. And others were like, No, it was actually true. Uh, Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kudos to them as all madness. Their courage and ferocity struck fear into the hearts of their enemies for who really could have anticipated that among this male dominated crew, stood these two women as capable and fearsome as any of them were on that ship. So it was really an unprecedented display of female strength and resilience that did earn Anne, Bonnie and Mary read a place in this pirate folklore that has really endured for centuries. That professor uh, and historian Kate Williams stated in an article by Maya Oppenheim for the independent quote, they broke gender boundaries and stunned people at the time. They were trailblazers in an incredibly male dominated society who forged their own way. They were lovers maybe and both fluid moving between living as men and living as women and if and it is true they have been forgotten from history they lived determinedly and followed their hearts both in being pirates and seeking their own destiny but also following their desire to love each other when society demanded marriage they were written about all the time but you see a fear of them creeping in a desire to downplay or ignore their story in the history of piracy. And I think that it's because writers in the later 18th century and 19th century worried that women were supposed to know their place as wives or servants might get some ideas about living as men's equals and love Mm -hmm. for each other. So before I wrap it up, I thought, you know, it was really interesting because I, I, when I was on this vacation, I was like, Oh, pirates. Cause they were talking a lot about pirates and pirates on a puffins tour that I went on. And none of the pirates they spoke about were women. So then I, I asked my husband, I was like, do you know anything about like the first female pirates? Who were they? Like, what was that? And he's like, I don't yeah. know. And I was like, I really don't know either. Like I've heard all of these other names. And so that's what ultimately made me look. But when I kept typing in the first female pirates, it kept coming up with Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed, but but then i dug a little deeper and yeah uh, i'm not so sure they were the first i think that they were just the first anglo-saxon european pirates that get right. the most attention so i did find a whole list of non-white non cis male pirates from over the centuries and there were three of them that i kind of took note of here the first one was dido around 800 bc the legendary founder of carthage sometimes considered a pirate since her legend involves her leading a sea expedition raids and the kidnapping of a large group of women and there's a picture of her and a painting of her and then also there's a sculpture of her as well at the louvre So the next one being Sayida al-Hura, which was she was from the mid 1500s, known as the ruler of the western coast of Morocco for over 30 years and a powerful Barbary corsair operating out of a location near Morocco. She was allied with the Ottoman corsair who operated out of Algiers. She raided Christian ships from Spain, regaining wealth her family had lost during the expulsions of Muslims from Spain. And much of the wealth was used to revive where she grew up or where she kind of reigned. And her name really means a woman who exercises power. Oh. Yeah. So she she had a lot of a lot of pirate vibes going on. We got some paintings of her on the screen, but this was so long ago. Who knows? Kind of like Dido, but Wait. ish. <laughs> And then the last one I want to highlight is Zhang Yi Sao, Early 1800s was when she was active, the wife of the pirate Zhang Yi. She participated in his piracy from the time of their marriage in 1801 onward. And after her husband's death in 1807, she took command of his powerful red flag fleet and dominated the South China Sea, uh, both militarily and politically. Um, She enforced various pirate codes Um, And made the rape of female captives punishable by death, which is really awesome. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so, and she ultimately surrendered in 1810, but she was allowed to retire in peace. Hmm. So that was kind of cool. So I will end end this story with an interesting tidbit. So Anne Bonney and Mary Reed were immortalized and forever commemorated with a statue in 2020. The statue was unveiled at Execution Dock, which was a place where pirates and smugglers were executed for more than four centuries. And that was in Wapping, East London. So the statue of Bonnie and Reed will ultimately be taken to Berg Island. It might've been by now already, I'm not sure, which is off the South Devon coast, which is where it you know that coast saw pirates come and go for centuries. So I really can't think of a better way for them to... Yeah, be together forever and piracy and perpetuity say that 10 times fast piracy and perpetuity (laughs) but yeah on the screen is is that
1: those are beautiful right they're gorgeous it is a
0: really interesting sculpture so that is the story of the quote-unquote first female pirates pirate queens not really the first but two interesting ones please look up other ones. There's actually quite a lengthy list and you can get all of our resources in the show notes, in the deck that we provide with all the pictures and everything. So uh, if you go to the Wikipedia link, I have one of them is a lot of female pirates from over the centuries. Really cool stuff. Just less information on a lot of them, Yeah, but very cool nonetheless.
1: Absolutely. So you mentioned you found this rabbit hole in Bar Harbor. Was there a lot of mm-hmm. pirating
0: up there? there was some pirating there oh, I want I'm trying to remember one of the stories that that was told and I I honestly just kind of like passed out mentally because I was like okay one I was looking for puffins but two I was like okay enough with all these like male raiders yes this Day too. so I kind of just got curious about female pirates and yeah, tapped out true but there were pirates i just don't because they they kind of from my research they did really spend a lot of time in the atlantic waters and the caribbean waters so yeah yeah, maybe there'd be some interest and the woman who was kind of giving the the guide for our tour was talking about a few different stories where that was relevant so yeah there's got to be some cool Maine pirate stories
1: call to action for people Mm -hmm. in maine or anywhere really if you yeah. know
0: any fun pirate story send it our way was your great 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 something a pirate let us know
1: let us know
0: <laughs> yeah so pirates piracy in perpetuity
1: <laughs> piracy in perpetuity it's interesting where we have alliteration with those p's because my story oh. also has alliteration with p's in it uh oh yes so <laughs> nice segue, Mike. We're going to talk about some story sources. We have dau.edu, very fun and exciting contracting and acquisition during World War I. That sounds so exciting, <laughs> doesn't it? I'm,
0: I'm peeking some of these and I yes. love this story. Yes.
1: Of course, as always, Wikipedia We've got some history.com. We got some Boston discovery guides. So we're mm. going to be some Massachusetts locals might be happy. History Today, NPR love me some npr mm-hmm. um Freightwaves.com. that's kind of more like nautical in nature mm. hey nautical you oh <laughs> oh my god a pun from your story those those two ladies were nautical by nature sorry like naughty by nature oh god <laughs> i'll cut that one out because that's not funny bostonpubliclibrary.org <laughs> and uh u.s navy uh... history link so i'm gonna start kind of boring so if you zone out in the audience i understand i do have to touch on world war one just briefly i promise we'll be soon out of it so like i said we're gonna start with world war one when did that happen well that was 1914 to 1918 on the screen there you see massachusetts that'll come up in a little bit Hmm. so world war one i'm not gonna go super deep into it i'm just gonna touch on it because it comes it's all wrapped up in a pretty bow with my story it was the first major transition with us like forces like the army the navy going from kind of being significant ish like not really on the global theater to becoming like a true global power so world war one was the first time that really like oh my god america is actually you know Mm. a force to behold so with a world war there's a lot of manufacturing that needs to happen Mm -hmm. and part of that manufacturing process means that there has to be an industry behind it so there was a national effort to kind of transform these pieces of kind of new coming up Mm -hmm. it was just before the 1920s industrial revolution had just happened like 40 years ago or so so there was all this new industry coming up But it was also paired with not a lot of practical applications on how to Mm. uh, transform that industry into like a wartime effort. So where my alliteration with peas comes from (laughs) is the phrase proper preparation prevents piss poor performance. And that's (laughs) pretty spot on here because what we have is this industry is like, a whole bunch of different bureaus that were kind of like semi-autonomous. So they kind of ran themselves and were like the government like kind of peaked in, but not really. So those bureaus worked great during peacetime and mm. they could not like learn how to communicate or talk to each other during this wartime effort and major like global wartime effort that was world war one and important uh,
0: question yes did you come up with that or did was that like a slogan of the war no
1: that was it's not a slogan of the war but i I think i've heard that since like high school
0: Oh, right. You You did tell us about the Y2K story. So maybe
1: it might have been the nuns in the Catholic school. that taught me about that.
0: (laughs) I was like, did your dad teach it because of the Y2K thing?
1: No, no, I think this (laughs) this may have been the nuns. So again, proper preparation prevents piss poor performance. So the bureaus, they really prided themselves on getting like their individual companies that made up the bureaus because the bureaus Mm. were kind of like an umbrella. And then there were all these little companies that fell under them. Hmm. So a lot of effort to make sure that these companies rose up to make the bureaus more powerful versus kind of like a joint effort and like, hey, we're all in the same nation. Maybe we should coordinate and work <laughs> with our allies.
0: <laughs> That's, and provide, too
1: like, uh, That's too sensical.
0: That's too sensical. But it was
1: also kind of like America wasn't really used to it. We were more mm. used to like fighting in our area.
0: against each
1: other (laughs) we we always fought against each other and like people who came here we were like no but this is the first time we told the world no there was a big philosophy of these individual companies that was like we have to do everything the cheapest we possibly can and the fastest we possibly can to get these Mm -hmm. big wartime contracts which was like so much money was being thrown around and just being like how can we get some of that sweet sweet money so there were a lot of excess profits from these individual companies because they took any available shortcut they could in, like, producing the goods, but then would also charge as much of a premium as possible mm. either to our government or to <laughs> other governments that were contracting with us. Okay, that's all I was going to go into with World War One. That's all the history you need to know now.
0: Foreshadowing. Uh-huh. Sweet, sweet. Sweet, sweet foreshadowing. <laughs> We're going to go to Mm 1915.
1: So America was in the war, but we're going to focus on a specific company, and that is the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. Mm -hmm. Henceforth, I'm going to call it the USIA. So if you hear USIA, that means United States Industrial Alcohol Mm.
0: Company. Um, Question. Yes. We had an alcohol company. Is this not during like prohibition times?
1: Prohibition Ah, does come into it okay yes but this was 1915 before prohibition
0: okay Uh, prohibition was was like
1: 1920. yeah i think it had been enacted at the very tail end of 1919 Mm -hmm. but it was really like
0: 1920. okay Uh,
1: so usia knows um that they want this sweet sweet money right uh so they (laughs) need to be able to push more industrial alcohol production Mm -hmm. and what is industrial alcohol used for because it doesn't really, you're like alcohol, like are people just gonna like drink through the war? Like, yeah, that's maybe something, but actually- Sickness. Uh, that's a great idea, but they actually turned sugars like mm. sugarcane or molasses into an ethanol, and then would mm. further refine that into uh, a key component mm. of artillery called cordite. And yeah. cordite is a smokeless gunpowder that's used in things like ammunition, like I said, or like artillery shells. So something that is definitely going to be used and was like a key component hmm. during the war, especially in world war one, these were really starting to like ramp up. So USIA has a subsidiary company mm-hmm. called purity distilling company. And Uh-oh. the reason <laughs> I have these maps up of Massachusetts. On the left is just like a a map, like 1919-ish map Mm. of Massachusetts. And then I have a zoomed-in map of Boston. And in that red circle is the north end of Boston. Mm. Purity Distilling Company chose this location because it was very close to the harbor. It was harbor Mm. on and also was close to a lot of the railroads. So what they would Mm. do is they would take the molasses have it stored there and then they would use the the railroads nearby to bring it to their distilling factories that were in east cambridge which is pretty Mm. nearby where that red circle is but they needed a place to store these goods this molasses that they would eventually turn into that ethanol and then would turn into that cordite Mm. so they needed someone to build it And they didn't want to spend too much money. So they said, let's look inside the company for someone who seems responsible enough to be able Uh to build this storage (laughs) facility uh, for a great big company. So they hire a man named Arthur P. Gell. Was he a builder? No, he was the financial advisor for the company. Oh, great. Perfect. To oversee the construction of a massive molasses storage tank. This tank was huge. It had uh, mm. 2.5 million gallon capacity, was 50 oh, feet man. tall and 90 feet in diameter and ended up costing about 30,000. The location of which was, like I said, the north end of Boston, Massachusetts, specifically 529 commercial street near Keeney square. If you're familiar with any do you know it.
0: What's there now?
1: I do know what's there now.
0: Is it, is it sugar? Are you telling me later? I am telling it. It comes. Okay. Into it. Okay. 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 It comes,
1: it. it comes into it, but I like the questions. I like the questions. <laughs> so we have this Arthur P. gel He's like, I'm gonna do this, and it's gonna be great, uh-huh. and he saved a bunch of money because it could have cost him way more than thirty thousand, mm-hmm.
0: but uh-huh.
1: it didn't, and it only cost thirty thousand because it's
0: all- giving submersive vibes. <laughs>
1: You know, it's real interesting you say that. <laughs> oh um, no! <laughs> well, there were no video game controllers involved in this because uh, okay. uh, only Not because yet. they didn't exist at the time. But if oh, they yeah. they did, I bet you know. they would. You um,
0: know. Sorry, I had to say it. <laughs>
1: yeah, no No. It's no. Fine, it's fine. Um. Well, I mean. No, it's, it's a good segue into what comes next. I think you can go to the next slide, which should show some photos of, Mm -hmm. so that's the purity distilling facility. And you see that train car. So literally it was like the train, the railroad was like right Mm -hmm. there, so they could load it up and then send it off to their distillery. And on the next slide, Mm -hmm. you should see some photos of the tank that's
0: Mm -hmm. from the elevated
1: that on the left-hand side of that. So again, 50 feet up in the air, Mm -hmm. 90 feet in diameter. And then yeah. So
0: I've never seen the like visuals of this, so yes. That's
1: cool. Well intense. There's a reason, but I won't get into it now because that'll be the story.
0: Ah uh like
1: the submersible, it was not constructed great. (laughs) That is the uh Mm. kindest way I can say it. It was made out of seven large curved steel plates that kind of overlapped. So they were they didn't come together like this they were like their pinkies touched and then rivets were placed so that was it There was a the steel plates oh and rivets holding in place and remember 50 feet tall 90 feet in diameter molasses all the
0: engineers are like cringing right now
1: yeah <laughs> yeah $30,000
0: uh, feels really inexpensive even for then so yeah this um, makes sense
1: <laughs> yeah So I'm going to ask you, this is like a question and answer session, right? I'm going to ask you a few questions and I want your honest answer. Do you think Jill had any experience with building?
0: Not for molasses. Not for
1: molasses. (laughs) Do you think that he could read plans, create blueprints or understand blueprints?
0: Never met the guy, but something's telling me Mm. because of the submersive vibes. No. (laughs) yes
1: how about this this is like a this is like a a gimme right this is a gimme answer did he have knowledge of safety practices
0: given your description of pinkies no no Uh, okay i'm wondering i really want to know if he's related to submersive guy
1: i should look that up I i didn't think to look up if there's any possible relation there but maybe No, he didn't have any knowledge (laughs) of those safety practices. Uh, He didn't even know that was a thing to think about. Mm. Yes. Another thing that kind of didn't help the situation that will be coming. I know I'm kind of like, I'm teasing here. No, no. But Jell only had two months to finish the construction before the first molasses shipment from the Caribbean would arrive in Boston Harbor. So we had thirty thousand dollars in two months to come up with something that might work. So, like I said, the site was selected because of its um, easy access to the harbor and also the railroad. The tank wasn't even fully tested before the first shipment arrived in 1915. Gel thought that a proper test would be filling it up with water to only six inches deep, and again. 50 feet high
0: wow
1: 90 feet in diameter
0: i'm sorry but i get that he doesn't know these things but like i would imagine if i was a builder or like someone who had to execute on this i'd be like hey hey question curious like right <laughs> there had to be qualified people around him who were doing this or did they just hire like randos off the street or something
1: great questions and that does come up in the story.
0: Okay. Sorry. And
1: like <laughs> no, you're there's good. so many questions about the whole thing. Interrupt. And it means that I've I've structured this well because we're gonna be learning together <laughs> here. We're
0: we all are learning
1: together. That's great. So <laughs> hey, something else to keep in mind, Kelsey, is at Uh-oh. this time building permits and code enforcement was Uh-oh. not a thing. Mm. People would just be like, yeah, okay. Or they could be bribed. And be like, hey, don't worry about it. Okay. (laughs) So over the course between 1915 and 1919, the tank would be filled to capacity, which was 25 million gallons, a total of eight times. And Mm -hmm. people, when it was full, nearby people would hear like this groaning coming from the area around the tank. (laughs) Leaking would often occur. So much so that children in the neighborhood would often like (laughs) gather nearby and would either like have a pot and just be like yay it's oh my god that's amazing or would like sip it from the rivets oh Uh, my god (laughs) purity distilling would fix the issue by caulking any of the leaking areas and then you know what in a brilliant stroke of inspiration decided you know what i'm i'm tired of people bringing this up so i'm gonna paint the tank brown so that it doesn't look like leaking molasses so (laughs) let's jump to 1919. Uh, Uh, on the left you can see the tank still there on the right we're coming to it oh my gosh world war 1 was over The race was on by Mm. purity distilling co to fill up as as much as possible with molasses before prohibition Mm. would be enacted because they knew it was on the horizon Uh, they knew by the end of the year that it would be enacted and Mm. they were trying to get as much molasses as possible so they could send it to the distillery to turn it Mm. into rum because once prohibition happened alcohol sales would plummet And Mm. I thought this was their last chance for a big cash grab. On January 12th, 1919, there was a steamer named the Miliero that arrived from the Caribbean to Boston Harbor and pumped Mm. 600 gallons of warm molasses into the tank, (laughs) which brought the total contents of the tank to 2 million gallons. So there had already been some molasses in there, and this is January. So the molasses is cold, Mm. that's already in there. And then the molasses from the ship is coming from the Caribbean, which is warm. Why am I bringing up this warm and cold molasses, who cares? Mm -hmm. Well, if you introduce, especially like (laughs) a sugary substance, any kind of like temperature fluctuation, fermentation can happen. This is normally not a problem because with, Good building codes. You know, there's <laughs> a lot of vents that are open to take care of any of these fermentation gas pressures, building up and causing any problems. And to, to the little credit I can give purity distilling, they did have some of those on there, but those were only open like spring, summer, fall. Mm. Why would it be in the winter? Cause it's always cold, right? Smart. So. We're going to go a few days later, January 15th, 1919. It was a beautiful, pleasant winter day mm-hmm. in the whole New England, Boston area. Something that we here experience every year, fall, spring, where it's the dead of winter. And then all mm. of the summer, like in the 40s for about a week or so. And we're like, oh my God, this is beautiful. And then the temperatures plummet. And then we're reminded where we live. No, it's not. <laughs> so. Warm winter day, people are walking around, enjoying themselves. The plant supervisor at Purity Distilling decided: you know what? Such a beautiful day. Nothing's gonna happen today. I'm gonna leave early and spend time with my buddy. and Emily. and uh just around 12:30 on January 15, 1919. Nearby witnesses began to hear a sound that sounded like gunfire, but it wasn't gunfire. It were all oh. the
0: rivets oh, no.
1: exploding out. And when that. Imagine happened,
0: being that kid, like licking the no. rivet as oh, no. like, It's a beautiful
1: day <laughs> here in 1919, in
0: winter, and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> get your weather. face exploded. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. (laughs) We're
1: all going to affect transatlantic accents and it's
0: going to be fine. Um,
1: So William White, the uh, distilling supervisor, wasn't there uh, to hear like the rivets exploding. He wasn't there to understand that because of the warmth of the fall spring that Boston was experiencing, to open those vents to allow any of those fermentation gases to safely release, Because why would there be fermentation in January, right? So, what ended up happening?
0: Science!
1: Science! What ended up happening is science. The tank (laughs) exploded, and the force of 2.3 million gallons of molasses came bursting out of the tank in all directions. And it was like a tsunami. And a tsunami of molasses. (laughs) And... (laughs) i don't know if you know what molasses is but it's a lot more thick and it's a lot more viscous than water is like all 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 that water would be really bad like on its own Mm. right but molasses has all that viscosity which means that it's going to hit things with so much more potential energy because Mm. science. Uh,
0: science
1: science um but what it did do was create a wave of molasses that was 25 (laughs) feet high and moved at speeds of 35 miles per hour destroying anything
0: and anyone in its path imagine being killed by molasses imagine just like take a second
1: no yeah no um
0: like all the orifices okay go on yeah
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, sorry for our audio. Uh, listening, I was nodding my head not, a, yes. uh, with the, the force. Uh, of the Speaking uh, of the force, the force of the wave was so great that it completely destroyed and leveled nearby houses. Um, uh, it collapsed a nearby railroad trestle and <laughs> took a firehouse engine 13 firehouse that was like right next to the property took it off of its foundation, lifted it up and pushed it 10 feet into the harbor with people inside of it. Oh my God. So you can see on the slide on the right-hand side, that's some aftermath of the, it just, it looks insane. Like the amount of destruction. And even on this next slide here, this is that railroad trestle where you can see part of the rivets and part of the tank just slammed into the railway and thankfully there was a conductor at the time that was going across Mm -hmm. the train, was able to stop in time and got all the opposite sides to be like, well, the bridge is out, like you cannot come or there's going to be an issue. So the first to assist were 116 cadets from the USS Nantucket, that's the ship on the Mm left-hand side there. I will mention that the slide does call that the USS Ranger because at the time, 1876, that's what it was called. It would be later recommissioned to the USS Nantucket in 1918. Mm. Nothing very, like, crazy about the ship. It was like a training ship that just stayed Mm. in the harbor kind of thing, like the Constitution kind of does, except we don't take tours on the USS Mm. Nantucket. So the Nantucket was moored nearby. The lieutenant uh, commander, Howard Copeland, had actually witnessed the storage tank explode And immediately rushed to offer aid and called everyone to their, you know, to help. The molasses was so thick that it was almost impossible for any aid workers. So we had those sailors, we had police uh, that had been called. There had actually been like policemen that were nearby, like on their patrol beat that had to run away as the wave of molasses was coming towards them. There was a red cross, any bystanders, they wanted to help as much as possible, find any Survivors, I have a, a article of the Boston Post here. I'm gonna say a little quote. The Boston Post reported, molasses waist deep covered the street and swirled and bubbled about the wreckage. Here and there struggled a form, whether it was animal or a human being, was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. By 1 p.m., so only 30 minutes later, approximately 100 to 150 people that were injured were brought to Haymarket Square, which is nearby in the north end. Mm. There was a relief station that was hastily set up to take care of any wounded, gather any anyone that had passed. In the end, there were 21 fatalities, untold loss of life from horses, other animals, hmm. uh, most of them dying from suffocation because of how hmm. viscous the molasses was. Um,
0: orifices.
1: Yeah, the orifices. How because of how thick the molasses was, search efforts for bodies were like ongoing they did end after 4 days like actually
0: searching for people because they mm. figured
1: we're going to have to wait and
0: go ahead no no i'm just like breathing deep because it's just so <laughs> yeah. bizarre i didn't know yeah, how it's... many people died from it like i've heard this story but in a different yeah. not like as intensely and for some reason i thought that like there were no fatal i mean i thought that there are no human fatalities but obviously i was wrong
1: so. yeah so actually which I I was going to bring this up later, but this is a perfect Mm. place to insert it now. Um, I've heard this story since I was
0: Mm.
1: in grade school, Mm -hmm. because during field trips, we'd always go to Boston, and we'd learn so much, and then we hear about the great molasses flood, and you're like, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) And you're kind of laughing about it. I know I do, and maybe I'm a terrible person, but I think most people would be like, No, I
0: totally, I'm still like, this is hilarious in the worst way.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You're like, of course you can outrun molasses like you've seen it. Yeah. Uh, But we have to remember it was warm and it was a lot. And this was before I knew what potential energy was. Now (laughs) I know a lot better and it's worse for me knowing a lot better. But uh, yeah, so I had known about this and so it was something that had always been on my mind. Mm. Like what happened? People said people died and I was like, that can't be true. Mm. So this has been a slow burn for for from (laughs) like. a little bit but yeah so recovery efforts they took weeks and they used pressurized seawater Mm. and blast away as much as they could because remember january in massachusetts Mm -hmm. that fall spring doesn't last long and it's molasses and it's going to get cold and when it gets cold Mm. it it hardens up and people had to use like chisels to empty out their flooded basements Like anything, it took forever to clean up from this. So, like, what did this lead to? There was an investigation by the Boston Municipal Court headed by Chief Justice Wilford Bolster. I wanted to find a photo of him because he just seems like the type of man that would have, like, one of those big old Wilford Brimley. (laughs) Mustaches. I couldn't, and I was very upset about it.
0: Ah, uh, you should have just found the video game that features him. uh Black Flag. Black flag, you gotta, Black molasses.
1: Wilfred Bolster. <laughs> black molasses. Oh, That's
0: actually a really fun video game. Maybe.
1: Maybe. Maybe. Maybe.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so Chief Justice Wilfred Bolster found that the disaster was due to the company's negligence and Mm. held USIA to be guilty of manslaughter because USIA was the umbrella company. Mm. But they were like, nah, no it wasn't. But this would result in the largest class action lawsuit in Massachusetts history to this date. One of the largest in US history to this date. Mm. There were 119 residents that brought suit against purity distilling at USIA. The complete investigation lasted six years, and during this time, purity distilling tried to shift blame away from themselves mm. by claiming that the tank had been a target of Italian American anarchists. Okay. So I do Hit. have to, <laughs> well, I do have to briefly go into one of our favorite subjects: anarchist? not anarchist racism. Oh, oh, oh. Another- oh. Here's another slide that shows firemen. Um, oh, my God. That's like how how thick it eventually became. Like, to Their knees. Imagine like sludging through that. No.
0: Just,
1: uh, you would become so tired just like going 10 it feet. It looks like
0: icicles it, hanging off of that ladder, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does.
0: But it's molasticles. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's molasticles.
1: I love it. I love that you said it. Mm-hmm. I love that you
0: said yeah. it. Yeah, I went with it. I said it. You heard it here, folks. Yeah, I mean? it's winter. <laughs> yeah, it'd be delicious.
1: Molassicals TM, TM, TM Yeah. Uh, that's now owned by OKWTF. Yeah. If you see it in any candy stores, they stole it from Let us. Let us
0: know. Yep. So,
1: <laughs> speaking of racism and anarchy and uh-uh. Americans, so the North End, we think of it now. Well, maybe not now. Um, Mm -hmm. We used to think of it as like this stronghold of Italian-American heritage. I know I used to go, I have about like 50% Italian in my blood, so I've been to like all the feast things. I've participated in like the war between whose pastry is better. I won't get into that now. I don't need to lose any audience (laughs) listeners. But before then, Mm -hmm. say like turn of the 20th century, maybe a little bit earlier, that was like the very well-to-do area of Boston. Mm. And then around the turning of the century, when there were a lot of Italian immigrants coming in, they needed to find a place for them. So what ended up happening is the wealthy left the North end and left that area for the Italians to come in. And they kind of made that area, like whatever you want to do there, we're just going to turn a blind Mm. eye, which is part of the reason Purity Distilling Co set up shop there because they knew they could get away with a lot more in that area Mm. And there's also kind Mm. of like cheap labor how some people think about immigrants coming from south america is how people Mm. at the time thought about italians coming to america or irish coming to america it's not a one-to-one comparison for sure just trying to give some historical viewpoint on that Mm -hmm. Uh, so this whole like Italian-American anarchists, like, what the hell are you talking about? They were very peaceful. So they often did protests, like, anti-World War I stuff. Mm. Uh, so they would be known to cause a ruckus, like, for anyone who is contracting for the U.S. government, like, War Department or anything like that. So there was traction in the public that it could mm. have been Italian-American anarchists. And the company used that unlike today, to try and scapegoat their own wrongdoing. But we do have someone to thank. On the left hand side here, we see Colonel Hugh Ogden. And on April twenty-eighth, 1925, so six years later, he was a conservative businessman. He hated anarchists. He has a wonderful moustache. I am sad that I couldn't find a similar moustache. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he concluded his investigation and he was an auditor for the Massachusetts Superior mm. Court at the time. Mm. Determined that it was due to negligence alone on the part of Purity Distilling USIA and the company's skin of Italian Americans was just an anti immigrant smokescreen. And the reason why this worked and really turned mm. the tide that was awful. I was like, puns,
0: puns, puns.
1: It really worked. It's kind of I'm trying to find like a modern an- analogy, uh, but I just hate everyone now. That's on the, yeah. you know, he was like super conservative, really mm. hated immigrants. So mm. if even he could say it was not immigrants, mm. then people were like, oh, we have to take this seriously. So mm. whatever you choose as an analog for that in modern times, <laughs> that's you.
0: There are plenty to choose from. Well, actually, yes. no, there's probably few to choose from actually now. because people don't right do the right thing anymore so i guess actually you you, there's not there's no opportunity this is your only one
1: yeah actually and part of the thing so in my research everyone Mm. did talk about like how anti-immigrant he was and they were like but he did have deeper morals where he always tried to do the right thing so I guess mm-hmm. his morality won out in this one case in 19. 19- in this
0: one situation. In this one situation. Maybe. So,
1: um, he was probably up-
0: paid for some reason for it, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe.
0: It probably uh, still came back around.
1: <laughs> well, he did make USAA pay 600000 to the Estates of the Victims, the city of Boston, and to the Boston Elevated Railway Company. We saw that mm-hmm. damage from that railway. Mm-hmm. If you take the $600,000 in 1925 and you adjust for recent-ish inflation, mm. that would be about $10 million um, like today, which really isn't much, but it was a lot more than what anyone had ever thought mm. before. Mm. And all of this would end up becoming a massive stepping stone towards corporate regulation in the U.S. and ensuring mm. that engineers were certified, mm. that building codes were followed and actually like done so i already talked about my experience with this you asked earlier like what's there now so what's in there is a part of like a recreational park area it's called langone mm-hmm. park if you're familiar with the freedom trail i'm not sure if mm-hmm. that are anyone in the audience if you're ever in boston you take a trip you might be walking down a sidewalk and you'll see like a red painted line that just goes all over the place that's the Freedom Trail. This actually comes right through the Freedom Trail. This plaque itself, you kind of have to duck down and look down a, a stairway to be able to see it. So It's not anywhere prominent, but it is located right near, actually, where the railway would have been, the elevated railway. Where the tank itself hmm. is, is a baseball diamond where people keep playing <laughs> baseball. So just... Interesting. Something I'd always heard, and there was like always this folklore. I don't know if you ever had it, but there were like teachers would be like, you know, they say on warm sunny days oh, you can God. still smell the molasses. And oh. I don't know if I did this because like I was told about the molasses, but I swear, mm. like when I was a kid in the '90s, hanging out near the science museum, I'd be, is that molasses? I smell something sweet <laughs> nearby.
0: It's so, like, what made Boston so sweet? Oh. Whoa, hey. Oh.
1: 21 deaths.
0: I wonder if anyone bottled it up a little bit and, like, kept it. it has got to be. There's got to be. be, right? There's got to be pieces of it in different places. I don't know.
1: I don't know. But, but the Boston Public Library had, like, tons of the photos. The photos that were on mm-hmm. my, in my sources were either from Wikipedia or part of archives from the Boston Public Library. They're pretty good about that. I'd be really mm. surprised if like any of the museums, there's got to be one.
0: Hey, someone had to collect a vial and it was in their, like, great. I mean, all oh, right, if you're in Boston and you live in a home that predates this molasses situation and it's in that area, please start tearing down your walls to see if anyone hid a vial of it in your walls. Just go at it, sledgehammer, whatever you need because i would like to try it thank you yeah
1: well it can't (laughs) have been in the immediate area because those were all decimated. gone
0: all right Uh, Um... in the immediate far enough area where (laughs) you could have collected a vial and hidden it in your walls i would like that yeah it'd
1: be very interesting i'm interested i i can't have been the only one I know, Kelsey, you, you said you've heard this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked to my wife about it. She's not from Massachusetts and she had never heard mm-hmm. about it. Um, oh! I talked to your husband about it and he had never heard about it
0: either. What? That's wow. what he told me. Maybe
1: he's lying. Yeah, doubt um, it, he
0: probably hasn't. Even though I'm like, all right, so how good was your engineering program if you didn't learn about the molasses fail? Also, yeah. you said that engineers now had to be certified. I'm sorry how many people that call themselves engineers like that is their job title in this country who have never had a moment of any type of education who build things that people could die in is astounding to me so
1: so many and it's yeah it's absurd there weren't more accidents and it's kind of crazy because outside of like the massachusetts area most people have no idea what this is.
0: So crazy. Like you would I feel think like you should you have talked. something about this more in Boston. Don't you feel like there should be something more intense about it?
1: Yeah. and Seriously, this is all that's left there is that little <sighs> plaque on the anniversary in 2019. They did have a, a little like, not like a celebration of life, but um,
0: a memorial. It's a commemoration,
1: I guess, and god they, i like, hope
0: it wasn't sponsored by a molasses company
1: can you imagine <laughs> usia uh, oh my maybe god yeah <laughs> maybe that's yeah
0: it. there we go comes back <laughs>
1: yeah, um yeah but there should huh. be i mean like 21 people died and yeah. that's awful and I, the, I, I was thinking all about the animals and i was like can i yeah. say that i feel worse about the animals but uh, no because people are no. terrible <laughs> people are terrible and so we're Some builders and financial advisors thought that they were builders in 1915. So that is my story.
0: I'm going to take us back here a couple slides. Please do. To this slide that features the January 16th Boston Post uh, newspaper. My favorite part of this is the area where it says, no escape from gigantic wave of fluid. (laughs) I couldn't stop reading that over and over. And I was just like, like, we know it, kind of fluid and that just leaves it open to some weird interpretation. Yes. Uh, I just feel like they could have just said, there's definitely space to say giant wave of molasses. Well, yeah, Um, and they say
1: molasses in the headline, too.
0: Yeah, and then why do they switch to fluid? Did they find out it was made of something else as well? Like, I don't know, but also it just sounds so icky, like a gigantic wave of fluid. I don't know. It just sounds, yeah. It's So I couldn't stop looking at it. I was obsessing over that the whole time that you were talking about this. It does seem like
1: something you would not want to Google search, like on a work computer. Yeah.
0: Yeah. NSFW, don't type that in.
1: Don't do it.
0: (laughs) Don't look Um, for this article.
1: It's funny that you mentioned like you couldn't stop reading that part of it I was like obsessed with the ads down on the bottom. Mm. Um like the those two fancy men in that little box there doing? next to the Boston Tavern. I'll I'll send you a larger
0: yeah I gotta know.
1: But you can actually see like center left you see the 35 states on the dry law list. So that's you can even mm. that early in nineteen nineteen you can see states were already starting to do prohibition. It's not unlike today with life. like abortion women's yep. rights libraries
0: yeah uh but it's a scary place to live History yes repeating itself in the worst way mm-hmm. it's just all one gigantic wave of fluid and shit <laughs> coming for
1: <laughs> <a gigantic> it <laughs> wave of fluid coming for <laughs> your forth.
0: fluid of choice
1: yeah ooh, i'm gonna say gak <laughs> or do you remember floam oh
0: i do remember floam.
1: I was never allowed to have it. I was I very upset. i to think
0: of, that. like, what my fluid of choice would be. Like,
1: so are you saying if you had to have a 25-foot wave of a fluid, a coming fluid? to 35 yeah. miles per hour, what would it be?
0: Mm-hmm. What would it be?
1: I don't know. But maybe people could answer their question. The next yeah. Question on, that's like, our the Instagram question out or... there.
0: Yeah. And also, too, a good segue to say this time when this episode drops we will make sure to put a poll on our social media what is that tiktok instagram at okwtf podcast we will put a poll so we can see you can vote for who whose story takes the cake on this one because i always forget
1: (laughs) (laughs) i do too the thing we're we're still learning we do we're learning we're not professional podcasters we're
0: not we're just two friends
1: who like to be creative and fall down uh,
0: holes fall
1: down rabbit holes get hit by viscous fluids Mm
0: -hmm. yep of choice
1: uh, of choices
0: Mm -hmm. of many different choices yeah so mike Mm. where can people submit their stories to us
1: You know, you could do it by sending an email to hello at okwtfpodcast.com. That would Mm -hmm. be a
0: great way to do that. How else could they do it?
1: If they go to our website and navigate around, they could see a story submission form that is pretty self-explanatory. It walks Mm -hmm. you through how to do it. Mm -hmm. and uh, we ask you some questions about it and then you can hit submit on that and then uh, we'll we'll get a little notification about it
0: submit 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 tell us your weird things doesn't have to be big doesn't have to be a molasses flood but it could be you know if you had i mean there's a lot of flooding going on right now so you know yes tell us your flood stories tell us anything we haven't totally figured out what we want to do with those stories but we will you'll find them Popping up eventually, but yeah, submit them and just check us out on our social media. Please don't uh, be shy. We love you. We see you listening. We look at our stats. So (laughs) come say hi, share it with your friends. If they just want to learn things, that's what we're all about. Fall down your own holes, whatever you want to do. Just don't get your holes filled with molasses. Anything else, Mike? Did we forget anything?
1: (laughs) No. No no i'm struggling okay. not to say the thing i want to say
0: you say it maybe don't i don't know you can text it to me <laughs> text it I, think, to me I, mean, wait a
1: minute. I can cut it i can cut it okay yeah fill your holes with your liquid of choice
0: i think you should keep that
1: yeah yeah i'm gonna cut
0: it's, that it's no you should totally keep that because it's up to people if they want to be sick or not
1: well, yeah, I'm talking about drinking a cup of water. A good
0: old Gatorade or something. Yeah, let's... Some nice ice water in here. This is me filling my hole with H2O. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for getting weird with us.
1: Submit your own OKWTF stories for us to share by visiting www.okwtfpodcast.com.
0: And stay in touch on all the social platforms at OKWTF Podcast.
1: Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to OKWTF on your streaming service of choice.
0: Thank you so much to Out of Flux and Ayal Talmudi for the use of their song, Da Boom Jiggle.
1: And thank you to Bilal Sarwar for their incredible cover art.
0: Until next time.